Welcome to the CX Cast, where we talk about all things experience. I'm your host, Adele Sage, joined as always by my co-host, Angelina Jenis. Hi, Angelina. Hello. We have a great guest today. We have Andrew Hogan, who is a principal analyst on the customer experience research team. And we've invited him here today to talk about enterprise UX. Welcome, Andrew. Great to have you here. Thank you. Excited to be here. So my first question is, what is enterprise UX? Because when I hear a term like that, I think about like a centralized UX group or something like that. So what, what does enterprise UX mean? Yeah, sometimes that's that's used. Uh, the way that we're talking about it here is as the digital tools that people use to get their jobs done. So whether you're a knowledge worker using you know PowerPoint, whether you're a retail employee using some sort of mobile point of sale solution, a customer service agent using an agent desktop, we're talking about their interactions with that software as well as the processes that sit around it. Okay, so like when I have to go into Salesforce and do things, that's my personal experience with Enterprise UX as an example. Exactly. Got it. Okay, thanks. Can you help us think about the things that go into the user experience? What affects the user experience? Yeah, so you've got the the software, like a, a Salesforce, like a team, something like that. There's actually an array of things for knowledge workers. You've also got these processes that are used. How long does it take you to get something back when you ask for approval? That's part of enterprise UX. It's the, the things that surround the way that you do your job and what you're expected to output from it. And there's just this massive set of digital tools that we all use and many of them are very bad. I don't want to get ahead of myself, but they're pretty rough. And there's a huge amount of room for improvement. And that's what I found in this research. I don't think that's a surprise as people who work at a company and have to deal with internal systems. I mean, I just, I almost like assume they're not going to be good. So I saw that you were uh, recently quoted in the Wall Street Journal. Congratulations. It's true. I was. The Wall Street Journal is covering a massive accidental overpayment that the city sort of did to themselves in a way. They had intended to send a $7 million payment and it had instead sent a $900 million payment. Oof. There's a great deal of detail in there, but the net of it is that city is currently out $500 million and in a lawsuit about whether that $500 million should be returned because the judge actually ruled it was human error and seemed inconceivable that city had made this mistake and had not intended to pay that money because it was such a large sum and they had a, a process in place to try to prevent it and all of these other things. But I was in there because I think this is a design debt interest payment. City has skipped over redesigning this tool for many years. Their app and their website are both much better. And this particular tool that was used is pretty outdated, pretty rough, and I think was a root cause of this transfer. It's, you know, it's hard to look at it and think that this would have happened if things hadn't been designed better. Any other examples of design debt that you've seen out there? Yeah. So one example that comes to mind, it's a sad example, the uh, USS McCain, the accident that happened a few years back. If you look at the way that that interface is designed in terms of driving the, the ship, it's very difficult to use. ProPublica did a long analysis of, of what it was 
like to design the complaints around that system. And ultimately, they're actually going to change the structure of that from a touchscreen to something that has tactile controls that the people can actually feel and move. So sad example, multiple sailors lost their lives because they had sort of skipped over the problems there. And you can go back to Three Mile Island, that uh, issue, which Don Norman said they couldn't have designed the control room worse if they had tried. You can go back to the Hawaii missile test. That's another example. There are many examples of these safety issues. And I would, I would guess that this city example is not a, the, the only one like it, right? All these things that happen that people cover up, not in any sort of nefarious way, but they cover up because it's embarrassing to talk about, but they, they tax an organization's time to fix the problems. They slow people down and someone has to manually clean things up. I was recently told by a cable provider that I was owed money from a, a move. They had accidentally overbilled me, but that was just one agent that had made a mistake and told me the wrong information because they had misread the way that their interface worked. And another agent told me correctly that I was not owed any money. There was no overpayment. It was because I had two accounts live at the same time. So these things are everywhere. And it resulted in another call to a call center and more cost. Yeah, so now you're talking about how employee tools actually affect the customer experience. So it affects our customer experiences that we can deliver, and the employee enablement. And also, it sounds like when you get into these really big problems or small problems that add up to a large quantity of small problems, you have issues that leaders should consider. Absolutely. The business case here is actually pretty simple, right? It potentially takes people longer to accomplish their goals as, as employees, which then makes customers either upset or just dissatisfied. You potentially have, it's harder to hire and train people. It's harder to retain people. And then if you want your best work from your employees, you've got to figure out some way of making them happy with their job. And if they're fighting their technology the whole way, if they're fighting the tool, how are you going to get them to be adaptive, creative, resilient, all of those things that we care about when it comes to what technology should do? I remember as an experienced strategist taking on enterprise UX projects and having employees tell me, don't change it because I've figured out a shortcut and I don't want to have to learn how to do something new. Is there still a business case there if folks have figured out how to live with the bad UX? Yeah, I mean, when you ask people, what do you want out of your hamburger? They're probably going to say like a bigger hamburger. They're not going to say, I want a plant-based burger or I want a, something else like that. We know from research that you can't just take the word of what people say. You can't just listen to the thing that they say and then do that. Your job as a business person, as a designer, as a technologist is to listen to what they say, translate that into something that will hopefully be better, and then test it. Is it better? Can you make it better? The answer is not to just sort of throw up your hands and say, well, we're not going to try at this. And then I'd also say, what about the next employee that doesn't work there yet? Do they know all the shortcuts? And the answer is, of course not, because this other person has earned through blood, sweat, and tears, the knowledge of how to navigate the system, is that really what you want every employee to go through? And are they even that efficient? That's even a question. 
from a ROI justification standpoint, how do you justify having a bunch of designers who are designing these internal systems? City now has a $500 million right, ROI here. It's like, if you can prevent that for less than $500 million, then you've won. What's sad about this is I virtually guarantee, I don't know this for, for sure, but many other banks have this. They have a group of people working on these kinds of problems. They have people dedicated to it. And these groups are actually growing. The biggest one I've seen so far as a percentage is, is uh, Netflix, not a financial services example, but half of their employees, their design employees and product employees, our analysis shows they're devoted to making it easier to make films. They're devoted to this employee side. And many other financial services companies have something similar. So I guess City does too. They have people devoted to making this better. They probably just don't have enough people devoted to making it better. Mm. So you have a couple different arguments. You have the productivity argument. You have the people sort of argument about training, about attrition, about morale, about productiveness and sort of effectiveness. And you have kind of a transformation argument. And if you're trying to do some big transformation, if you've been bought into this idea that the organization needs to digitally transform, you're going to need to think about this. Or if you want to sort of transform and serve a market in a different way, you're going to have to think about this. There's story after story that I found in this research, most of it couldn't be published, which is a shame, of tools being built that were never used. The business case was there. They said, oh, we're going to do this and everything's going to get better. And then they didn't actually put in the effort to the UX part. They just bought the software and implemented it and said it'll get better. So when you think about the productivity, when you think about the people, when you think about the transformation capabilities, that's when the business case becomes more clear for investing in design of the tools that employees use to do their jobs. One of the better analogies here is it's like asking chefs to cook with dull knives, to cook with pots that don't work that well. If the burner on a, in an oven isn't operating correctly and you can't get it up to a certain temperature, you're going to make really terrible food. And that's kind of what you're asking your employees to do when you give them bad tools and when you don't improve the tools. So do you want to blame the chef in that case? Or do you want to say, maybe we should give them better tools and then see if that chef can perform and see if the food can get better? I love that analogy. Yeah. Where typically do these folks sit in the organization? I mean, you know, back to my, my original question of like, wasn't this just a centralized UX team? Is there, are they actually part of a centralized UX team, the folks who are looking at internal systems, or are they typically separate? Yeah, so it's pretty inconsistent. Some chunk uh, are completely separate. It's not a particularly high number. I want to say it's in the 10 to 20% sort of range. Some percentage are different people, but they report to the same team. And that number is probably like 20 to 30% or something like that. And then the rest of it is whatever people have time for. And it's sort of the same chunk of people that are working on the consumer facing things. And we actually have data from like a design effort perspective. This gets about half the design effort typically of consumer, direct consumer facing applications like an app or a website. So you just should ask yourself, is that half really enough? Is that really what we think should happen? Or is it having a bigger 
effect on the customer experience than that. Who can help you figure out how to solve these problems, either in the organization or outside of it? So a lot of the design services companies that I also spend a lot of time with have this capability. So there's quotes in this research from Frog, really prominent design consultancy. They do this. Certainly Accenture does this, IBM, those folks. But there more and more is an investment in outside design capabilities to sort of push these groups along. Because often there's more internal resistance because this idea isn't necessarily as well supported inside organizations or well understood inside organizations. So you have to nudge things along. We actually have kind of a four-part process and the design services companies can actually help you probably along the whole way. What's the four-part process? So the four-part process is to ignite action in some way. You need to create revelatory experiences among your your people. You've got to kind of shock them into doing something. And, And usually that's with like a number, some sort of vision of the future, potentially go find someone and create like a unified front. There's probably someone involved in process optimization inside the company. And they're just as pissed about how this is going as you are. And then the second one is you've got to educate and guide people on how to get a real understanding of users. Angelina shared an example around, well, I already know how to do this. I already have a shortcut. And you've got to help your other stakeholders understand that, yeah, they're going to say that. And you have to listen to it. It's not something you should just ignore. But it's also not real understanding of users. It's a superficial statement about the way that they do things today. Sounds like it's also a fear of change. That's a natural human reaction. It's like, oh, don't don't change this thing. I'm used to it now. It might not be perfect, but I know I'm used to it. Don't change it. Well, and especially now, right? People just in the course of a year have changed completely the way that they work and operate. And they've been forced to use many other things they didn't necessarily expect to. It's pretty naturally to have that fear of change. And I'd argue even more of a sign that it's worth understanding whether things are working well for them. Because underneath that is a desire to be effective at their jobs and be effective with the tools that they use. The third thing is just to think about the basics. There's many open source design systems out there. What can be taken from there? Make the buttons bigger, make the text more readable. That'll get you part of the way there already. And then the fourth is what are the roots of of this complexity of these issues? So why is the process what it is? Can it be changed? And why does it even need to exist? Taking a much deeper look than that, the simple UI changes that would happen. And it's an ongoing process and a journey. That's why Netflix has half of their designers, based on our, our analysis of what they're doing, working on this because it's really hard and it takes a lot of effort. But it's worth it. Yeah. Based on our analysis, it looks like it's worth it, especially in times of great transformation and great change, which we are living in one right now. It's not like the rest of this year is going to get real simple and next year isn't going to be much simpler either. Every organization is dealing with change in how all this is going to function. And I'll give you one other thing. We're at the beginning of a low-code, no-code revolution. All those people are going to make new applications that people use. Are those going to be good? What's a low-code, no-code revolution? So the idea 
and other analysts at Forrester cover it much more, the idea is that you have citizen developers and business people who are making applications to make their jobs better, faster, simpler, all of those things, using all kinds of different tools, everybody from Microsoft to Airtable to Amazon, you just run down the list, right? And that's just going to be an explosion of different tools that people use. It will probably make some people's job easier. Will it make other people's jobs harder? And is there a way that the UX of those tools can be improved using all the same methods that you'd use for a consumer-facing application? And I'll give you one more thing. The third-party enterprise SaaS universe is only expanding. We're being asked to use more and more and more tools. There has to be a breaking point of how many tools you can use that are all different. Can you find a way to integrate and bring those together in a way that's effective? And so those forces, I think, will make this a bigger and bigger topic requiring more and more investment. It's all the same investment that you'd already be making on the consumer side. It's just choosing to care enough about it to make it easier from the employee Mm -hmm. side. Some of my clients have talked about, you mentioned contact center agents, for example. They're trying to create, I think they're often calling it a single pane so that the contact center agents are no longer jumping around from system to system. Everything is aggregated into one view for them to make that simpler. And that's a better experience for them, but it's clearly delivering a better customer experience as well if they can help a customer faster with whatever their problem is or not have to put them on hold for as long or whatever it may be. Mm-hmm. Eliminate repetition. Yeah, super noble goal worth doing. But just imagine if you just took all the information you had and you just you squished it all together, that wouldn't be a better experience. So clearly between the idea of let's put the information together in a single pane and combining that with let's do it well in a way that makes their jobs easier, is going to require some work and some design effort. It won't just happen on accident. Mm-hmm. Andrew, you're, you're clearly passionate about this topic. Why are you so passionate about it? So when I think about the cable company employee that I talked to, that person didn't mean to do a bad job and tell me the wrong information. And when I think about the three people involved in that city example who accidentally sent $900 million, probably cost the company tons of legal fees and you know potentially the 500 million i think about those employees and how bad they must feel for those three people they had to sit through lawsuits depositions i don't know if they've been fired i have no idea i just think about how unfair it is that they were given something so bad to use to do this really critical task and they were trying to do the right thing they followed the processes as far as the legal side seems to indicate And I just think about how unfair that is. And also now their customer, who's a giant CPG company, is also pulled into this. So the customer is having to deal with this on some level as well. And then even the companies that receive the money are having to deal with it. It's just, you think about what people are spending their time on, and is this the thing that they should be doing and want to be doing, or do they want to be doing something else to make the create value for the company, create value for themselves. And that's the stuff that I think gets many people motivated for why this should matter, because it's, this is a huge chunk of people's lives that is spent doing work. So that's part of why I'm so strange and fired up about this, is that it seems like something that should get improved. It's very noble. But yeah, it is. It's sad to think about those people whose lives have probably been ruined in some way or another, maybe not, you know, literally forever, but I mean, this is trauma 
to have made a mistake that cost so much money. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In the middle of, I have to get my timeline right. I'm pretty sure it's in the middle of COVID as well. So yeah. on top of that, on top of everything they were dealing with, they've got this. Yeah. When you look at an extreme example like that, you can extrapolate it to all of the, the rest of the people going through daily frustrations that are not at that scale, but are still affecting their quality of life. Mm-hmm. Right. Just constant payments to this design debt that should be addressed. Well, Andrew, thank you for sharing your research on Enterprise UX. I know you have a lot of your reports up on Forrester.com. If there are folks listening who are interested in sharing their own perspective, where can they reach you? They can send me uh, an email, which I think we can put in the description, or uh, they can send me a LinkedIn message. Awesome. Andrew, it's always great having you on. And thanks, everyone, for joining another episode of the CX Cast. Until next time. Thank you.